This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Each year, IBM and AFSIA host the Spade Defense Conference with senior defense and intelligence leaders from the U.S., around the world, and industry. This day-long event will focus on the theme of powering decision advantage, deploying the data fabric for multi-domain command and control. What are multi-domain command and control and joint all-domain command and control? How does the data fabric help realize the benefits of this environment? What are the key technological developments supporting multi-domain operations? And how are the U.S. and its allies collaborating to deliver the vision of multi-domain and joint all-domain command and control? I'll explore these questions and so much more with Len Bastian, Chief Information Officer, CIO at Canada's Department of National Defense, and Terry Halverson, former CIO at the U.S. Department of Defense, now Senior Executive at IBM. Terry, welcome back. It's great to have you. Great to be here. And Len, as always, welcome back. It's great to have you as well. Michael, it's a pleasure. Thanks. So, uh, Terry, this question's for you. Uh, what is Spade, and what is the what are the topics being discussed at Spade 2023, and how does this year's topics look to build on last year's meeting and discussion? It's a thought conference that specializes in the defense area, and this year's theme is really about two things: how do you better use data, and how do you better use that data to make decisions that are kind of better informed and faster to give you an edge in the battle space. We had kind of opened that dialogue with some of the discussions from last year, but this year the technology is more mature. Services themselves, I think, are are more mature and more focused around data and how to really extract the best value in a timely manner. And I think that's the the big difference from last year. And this is a question for open to both of you, Terry and Len. Um, what do you hope to achieve by convening such a discussion? It's more towards you, Terry. And, and who participates, who attends, and what's it about? What we've got is industry and kind of the defense leaders as our clients engaged in conversations in the U.S., in Brussels and in um, uh, Canberra, Australia. And, and what we hope to result here is that we get a better understanding between defense and the industry group about how the technology can help, what are some of the maybe policies and procedures that defense would need to implement in addition to the technologies. And from a business standpoint, really, are we putting the technologies together in the right way to best meet the mission needs of defense. So it is really an exchange of thoughts and ideas with the purpose of how do we build together in a cooperative way 
the best set of solutions that includes the technology, the processes, and the people to really yield the, in this case, the best, most timely decisions that can be distributed to commanders to give the allies here, the U.S. and, and, and its allies, a an advantage um, on the battlefield. Lynn? I'm just going to jump on that last point because I, I think Terry has nailed it in the sense that in the last year, since last we spoke about this and we talked about all domain awareness and the value of data, what's become real this year um, is our armed force north of the border in Canada anyway has has sort of realized that it needs to be more digital or frankly, it needs to start being digital. And it feels like, and I'll I'll probably get into this more um, during the panel, but I, I've heard I've heard it many times. They feel like we're falling behind. Um, that our armed force, for some reason, is going to be somewhat handicapped if we don't get on our digital game. And the more I dug into that statement, what really seems to flow to the top is is the availability of data, um, because we've never had more data. But yet we've never had less visibility or ability, I should say, to turn that data from, you know, from a commodity into a decision. And and that's what what I'm anxious to to see evolve between our, you know, not only our two nations, because I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased this is being hosted in the U.S. It's certainly easier to get to. But Spade has always been valuable to me in the sense that it brings together industry. And, and I'll have an opportunity to see because. I find industry is very good at influencing our business owners to think and talk about what digital is, but but where I need industry to help and not just influence is how do I bring the technology to bear? Like how do I bring capabilities online that's going to move the data from the back office into the hands of the operator and make those decisions uh, a force multiplier? Well, before we delve into specifics, let us learn more about each other. Len, could you tell us more about your role and responsibilities within the Canadian Department of National Defense? Sure. Thanks, Michael. Um, Chief Information Officer is the title and role that uh, I occupy. You think that you could Google that probably and get a good definition um, of what a CIO is supposed to be. But I can tell you in a military context, any department of defense uh, that I've worked with, the CIO has a very particular role. And in this context of data and digital, um, being the enabler is is kind of the focus. Right now, it is bringing technology to the business um, to allow the business to make the transformation over to a more digital uh, way of, of delivering their services. And in our case, the services of defense uh, are the armed forces. And so I, I would paraphrase, I guess, um, all the things a normal CIO does, plus plus, in the sense that we have to bring capabilities in the command and control space, we have to bring capabilities in the intelligence space, and we have to enable capabilities, obviously, in in the IT space. That just makes the business more effective uh, and more more valued. And and that's that's a niche role that I've, I I can honestly say is unique to the CIO of defense. That's wonderful. So now I want to dig deeper into the context of what we're discussing at Spade um, uh, during the week of March 9th. Um, within the defense and military context, what is meant by the concept of decision advantage and decision superiority? And perhaps you both could highlight the core aspects or uh, of each of these comments and, and what, what uh, enables the pursuit and achievement of either one or the other? 
in the context of defense, we used to call it information superiority. We used to talk about the ability to get information in a timely manner into the hands of the folks that needed it the most um, with fidelity and security and all that. The concept of decision elevates that game. It, it speaks to not only the information, but but the metadata, the context around the information and allowing for almost the immediacy of decision-making, which is kind of the the new world of, of war fighting, especially in cyberspace. So in Canada, decision advantage really is ultimately about being able to leverage the full value of our data and, and at the speed of relevance. It's difficult to present information, actually. It, it's, it's not intuitive. Um, the fact that we keep our data in so many different places, in so many different um, protected environments, on so many different networks, you can only imagine if, if you had to pull from all those storage areas or those those repositories to, 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 to consolidate contextual information for a decision that one, doing it in a timely manner could obviously be very difficult. And two, uh, having some assurance about its fidelity is obviously a concern and a risk that makes cyber defense even more uh, precarious. So data data advantage superiority, um, one leads to the other. And the fact that it's not easy and it's not intuitive and we have our data, and like I said earlier, more than we've ever had available to us. And that's only going to exponentially increase. You know, as emerging uh, technologies start to disrupt the way we, we think about data because it's going to generate more sensor data and it's going to have more bandwidth um, available to it. The Internet of Things, the open source is all going to provide intelligence that we're going to want. Um, but the ability to get it and keep it and present it in, in a way that is decision superiority is is the goal. Uh, I think there's a huge journey ahead of us, though, from where we are today to where we need to be. And I think industry has a, an opinion uh, how we get there. What are the key technological developments supporting multi-domain and all joint domain command and control operations? We'll explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour on deploying the data fabric to realize the vision of multi-domain and joint all-domain command and control. Transitioning a little bit to continue with uh, identifying and defining certain concepts, last year's spade, we talked about 
terms like multi-domain command and control and joint all-domain command and control, JADC2, as it's referred to. As a refresher for our audience, I was hoping both of you could describe these concepts for us again. And why is it critically important for nations like the U.S., Canada, and our allied countries to pursue and realize such an environment? JADC2, multiple, multiple domain C2, C3, C4, boils down to how do we best use all of the relevant data at speed to command and direct our forces in such a way that we achieve a superiority, be it firepower superiority, force superiority, or overall superiority that influences the battle space. And, and, and I hate to get this simple, so that we win. I mean, that, that in the end is what all of those things are talking about. I think the reason you see many names for it is we started out, at least in the U.S., thinking about how we did that with the U.S. systems. That lasted about a second. And then we had to we quickly, quickly realize, okay, that's got to now include both our continual allies and the ability to flex more allies in and out as the situation would require. Uh, and I think that's why you see everything from multiple domain to JADC2 to, uh, you know, some other names that you, you might hear out of NACO. But the, the thing I think we have progressed on is that everybody, while we may have some different names, is now coalesced around the fact that it is about getting data to commanders at the right level and quickly, and maybe we haven't talked enough about the, the level piece. So one of the things that sometimes happens today is that, that we give commanders information and data that, frankly, they don't have the ability with their forces to actually influence, or it's it's too much data that, that they can't be influenced by. So in addition to providing more data faster, we're also having to focus on what is the right data to go to what level of organizational command. And that varies you know, by the capabilities of each of those organizations and type of organization. You know, an armored battalion is going to have a much different perspective than, say, a infantry battalion or a support battalion. How do we structure the data so that it is hitting that commander with the right data that, given the resources he has, he can influence the particular piece or part of the battle space that he is most concerned with or she is most concerned with? We call it pan-domain, C2. Um, and it, it means the same. But in Canada... A significant change how we will execute some of our military operations. So of course, we'll continue to to operate in land, maritime, and air. However, the threat landscape has we've seen you know over the last year, for example, um, above and below the threshold of armed conflict, uh, is actually forcing us to consider the necessity to view the Can the defense of of Canada and even North America through a multi-domain or pan-domain lens. So what what does that mean? Well. Furthermore, the inclusion of new domain of military operation includes space, cyber, uh, means that Canada and, and others will have to adopt to a whole of government approach. So let's just let, let's just digress for a minute. 
let's say there's a balloon um, <laughs> floating floating over your country at a very high altitude. Um, a lot of different government agencies are concerned about that, not just the armed forces. Uh, Transport Canada, obviously, um, airspace. You have the Coast Guard. Is this thing going to come down? Um, you know, somewhere um, where civilians are need to be concerned. Then you have, you know, you have the the border services involvement. You have the federal policing involvement. So there's all these agencies that need to coalesce and come together in a single domain or pan domain, if you will, to provide data, to provide intelligence through data. And so what this really is about on a macro level is the ability to provide that technical environment for that data to flow with, again, fidelity and security. If you boil it down into the view of the Canadian Armed Forces, um, absolutely, we've seen the, the value of being pan-domain aware. And I, I uh, as one of the owner and operators of the Canadian Cyber Command, um, I've challenged my team to be aware, at least in their domain, and it's not all that easy. The commander of the Air Force uh, in Canada will at least know if there's a Cessna that went down in a potato field on the East Coast, he'll be told. It's not his plane. It's not his equity or his risk, really, but it's his domain, and he's aware of it. And it's just an awareness level that needs to be raised to the next generation. And so I say that just to translate for those of us who never wore the uniform, who weren't operators or commanders, um, to what this means to, you know, to the citizens of our of our nations. And so when we look at this, um, we look at it more of a whole of government approach over just the military, because we do depend significantly on fusion from across all those, um, all those jurisdictions. Uh, and providing the uh, the critical infrastructure um, is really what this is about. I was wondering, Marilyn, do you have any, given what we did discuss last year, and you kind of hinted at it, I don't know if you have any more to share, but uh, are there any updates in this area about progress or are there any innovations? Uh, you've already kind of alluded to some of the challenges. What has changed that maybe some things you want to highlight? Our, our political masters are now very aware that these threat vectors, although they were always there, uh, are now have higher degrees of reality uh, for them, and that this isn't just, you know, uh, an, a, a potential uh, outcome or a potential threat. These things are starting to come true. So in Canada, there's really two distinct areas uh, that we've developed. First off, as I stated earlier, the threat landscape. Um, it just continues to change. And the technology uh, provides both an opportunity and a vulnerability as we wander into the cloud, for example, um, and secure cloud, even secret cloud. Um, it provides us the opportunity, but also provides us um, another risk profile that we just need to be ready to, to adapt. Um, the second aspect relates uh, really since we've talked last week, uh, last year, sorry, is, is the, uh, the amount of investments that because of the awareness of the threat, because of the global activities that is just making so much of this real, or frankly, what we've been briefing them on, what's happening in cyberspace is is beyond thresholds we've seen um, in our generation. So, so that has come with and um, an elevated awareness, and therefore an elevated uh, investment profile. 
So we announced over $36 billion uh, to do um, good things in the defense of continental North America, uh, what we know today as NORAD. Specifically in the cyber realm or in the IT space, over $4 billion over the next 10 years allocated to some fundamental projects to advance the IT debt that we've been um, that has frankly we've been dealing with for years where we've mortgaged our future in the past now it's become an opportunity for us because it and cyber is is going to be the next you know frontier so to speak of 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 attack they know now and they realize that it's time to to pay down those debts and and get ourselves to a more modern it infrastructure so we can sustain and look to transform towards a more digital uh, business so, so in, in this space we have several fundamental projects that are uh, in flight right now compared to where we were last year i think i left spade and within a week of getting home from washington my our minister announced this, these that investment profile, which for Canada is very significant. Let me break it down for you. Um, our the CIO budget, the IT budget for the Department of National Defense um, varies somewhere north of half a billion, somewhere south of a billion, depending on the year and what's going on. Um, Four point three billion over ten years is going to add. Do the math. Uh, approximately on average, it, it's profiled differently. It's not linear, but let's just say it is. Adds four hundred million to that. That's a lot of work. It's great. It's, it's it's I love the relevancy and the interest in making things better, but that's a lot of work, and that's going to mean a lot of work for us. Uh, and we're concerned right now. And I'll just leave it on a on a, an opportunity conversation around talent and how do I how can industry be ready to help us execute on some of that program because that's a lot of work. Absolutely, Len. Great, great perspective. Terry, I want to ask the same, uh, as a follow-up, take the same question I just posed to Len and provide us with any updates, progress year over year in the pursuit and realization of JADC2 for, for the U.S. context. I think Len and Cole, partner, I think today we are seeing a much deeper, better informed conversation that frankly puts the IT cyber information warfare space more on par with the traditional weapon space. I think what we're seeing today is a realization that data information is in many times as valuable as the weapons that, that we buy and, and sometimes actually more valuable than the weapons so we're having a much better conversation, much richer conversation about what is that trade space today between, I would say, the traditional weapon systems and the information systems. We're also, along with that, having a much richer conversation on two fronts about security. One, that yes, we, we've got to have security of the data and security of the systems but there's nuance part of that discussion that says, while it must be more secure, it also has to be deliverable to commanders faster. So we're also now having a trade-based discussion between how secure against the time it takes to deliver that data to a commander. And I think as we have those discussions, we're going to come to some things that will 
fundamentally change some of our risk assessments and fundamentally change some of the the procedures and policies that we have in place today with respect to you know cybersecurity how we pass data and all of that is being complicated by the fact and we talked about this earlier that we have more and more data but it's not just that we have more and more data we have more and more data today coming in from what I'll call open sources, you know, sensors, traffic reports. I mean, it really is about the mission and it's about getting dominance. And when you look at it that way, it does tend to change some of the other rules, processes, procedures, and lets you open the envelope to some different ways and different technologies of, of getting this done. That's a great point. I am sensitive to the point of mission being central and focused, but the the Spade 2023 does reference a term, which I'd love for us to talk about a little bit, and it's called the data fabric. What is meant by this term? What capabilities and conditions are prerequisite and necessary in order to leverage the benefits of this concept called data fabric? Len? So as we all wander into... Um, modern architectures, namely cloud environments, we're seeing our data repositories become more available, which is great. It's part of the it's part of the outcome we're looking for. Um, but then we've come to the realization that not all clouds are built uh, equal and they are they're not all uh, actually good at everything. And so some clouds will have advantages in certain areas and certain kinds of business transaction while others will, obviously have dominance in different ones. And so I've, what, I, what we've seen lately is the U.S. pivot from the JEDI contract, which was a dedicated single uh, provider contract, um, to a, a multi-provider contract. We're going to give them access to multi-cloud environments. So how, how, do you, how do you leverage that? Where does that become better? Um, because now your data is going to be in different clouds, different panes of glass, so to speak. And you can layer those glass panes over each other, but if they can't talk to each other, then your data is still somewhat siloed. And so the concept of data fabric is the ability for your data, no matter where it is, to be architected in a way that it becomes available to you on demand. And and that's that's what we've been talking about. So getting data to the right place at the right time for the right purpose, but let that data exist in the best pane of glass available for it. And, and that's about as simple as I can explain the concept, Terry. We have such a diverse set of data locations, types of data, the software that runs them. How do you put that all together in a fabric that has value? Um, I think fabric was the right term. If you can't knit a fabric together, it doesn't serve any purpose. We've got to be able to knit all of our data types, storage, software together in a way that produces value and speed that keeps us ahead of the threat. Now, easy to say, one of the reasons you keep seeing this as a recurring theme is because it's, it's harder to do and as Len pointed out, the volumes of data are just going to keep increasing at an exponential speed we can't even predict. What also makes it more complicated for the defense systems is 
all of them, including the U.S. We keep systems, and, and, and this is not a good or bad or, you know, what could you do differently? It's just a fact. We keep systems for a long time. We have a lot of very specific functioning legacy systems. They've now got to play in a in a bigger environment. And, and how do you do that? And then how do you keep that at an affordable cost? I mean, that that is the problem kind of in a nutshell. How do you do that? How do you make it affordable? And to some extent, how do you make it adaptable so that while we can't predict maybe where the next big technology change is going to be either on the weapon side or the information warfare side, we know it's going to happen. So how do you build all that with some capability to be able to react more quickly to the changes we know that are coming? I need a stretchable fabric that's waterproof, snowproof, and really good together. Well, well said, Terry. So yeah, I, I was wondering if you gentlemen will take some time to discuss the elements that go into uh, realizing realizing the vision of the discussion that's going to be Spade uh, 2023. And, and one area I was hoping you could talk about is uh, what innovations are needed in data management to realize this joint all-demand command and control kind of concept? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in. And uh, to do this, uh, to answer that question, which is a great question, um, I'm going to take on an angle that is more about where are the challenges? Where do I see the the hard stuff that makes this not so obvious? Because when you say it that way, um, all domain uh, command and control, it, it, it from a from a very senior position, it can, sounds kind of easy. We just get on with it, right? Like let's just put the data all in a lake and we'll be good. Um, it, it, here's where things get complicated, especially in a military context, in a defense and security portfolio department like defense, uh, data classification. The way we treat our data, the way we label it and what we think or who we think should and shouldn't uh, have access to it, it puts a condition uh, in play that is very difficult sometimes to uh, to work with. And so what we think, one of the big things um, I'm trying to work through my government is a policy around how we handle secret, how we handle classified data and information. And the, the Cold War adage that classified information needs to be air-gapped because we just don't trust that thing called the internet. Um, the reality is if we're gonna get access to global capabilities produced by industry, uh, we're going to have to, especially smaller countries, and I'll put Canada in that uh, in that category, because we'll never have a business case, in my opinion, and maybe I'll be proven wrong, um, where industry is going to come into Canada and build us a sovereign, you know, public cloud for classified, because the you know the average number of seats in Canada uh, and needing that it can be measured in the tens of thousands, not the hundreds of thousands. And and I think that's where scale and economy come together in business. And we get told like, mm-hmm, wow, you you might have to jump on that internet highway to go to another country who maybe you trust because they're an ally, potentially one of the five, um, and use their infrastructure because we've we've got access to it there. But to do that, you need to rethink your policies because right now, policy inhibitive because of classification of data. Um, and we do this to ourselves. We overclassify 
all the time. I, I, I've had the pleasure of working for a, a number of environmental commanders in Canada. And one of the more provocative one was a Navy commander a few years ago who said, you know what, um, you can look at Google Earth and tell me where my ships are. So my ship's positions are not classified information. It's available on the internet. So stop classifying and making it difficult for Len to do all domain awareness and work through all these these um, roadblocks just declassify the data that's that's not that risky or frankly not even classified when you really get down to the nuts and bolts of it so two things we need business owners uh in our my case environmental commanders to truly rethink uh how and when their data needs to be uh classified and at what level and then we need um the magic of technology to come into play and allow me to move that data across the different panes of glass and the different clouds and the different domains, and maybe even move it up and down in classification, depending on the time and the audience and the attribution of who has access to see it, whether that's an ally or or, or someone um, domestically. So I think there's there's opportunity here, and I, I don't want to end on, here's why I can't do it, but uh, it's kind of the way I approach this question, which is, here's the challenge function, here's the opportunity, here's where... I, I'm a I'm a blank sheet of paper when industry comes and talks to me about this stuff because we don't have it right and we need to be told what needs to be true for us to rethink this and and I've had some great conversations this year with with, with industry but industry at a senior level realizing our problem space and they are thinking through these problems how we share data how we classify it and then how do we move it between the panes. How are the U.S. and its allies collaborating to deliver on the vision of multi-domain and joint all-domain command and control? We'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour on deploying the data fabric to realize the vision of multi-domain and joint all-domain command and control. I would like to stay on this and talk about another technology and that is augmented intelligence. Can we figure can you guys talk about how this factors into realizing the vision of uh, multi-domain uh, command control? 
Wow. Timely, really timely. Uh, the conversation in the past few months has been all about chat GPT. What is that? And how did that work? Um, and how powerful is it? And does it have any weaknesses? And and you saw the flurry of attention through social media that something like that. And I put that in the category of of what can augmented intelligence um, look like and feel like uh, to the average person. Now translate that, if you will, to a defense uh, environment and our abilities to leverage this kind of automated intelligence or augmented uh, intelligence, if you will, um, in in solving our problems. It's kind of a counter to what I just lamented about when it comes to, you know, how can I possibly sort through all this data if it's not that valuable? What this does, it's a game changer. It makes a whole bunch of what would otherwise look like benign data become very valuable. Um, because it's able to look for correlations and relationships at, at the speed of relevance, speed of compute power, frankly, and 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 then just fast forward a little bit here in time, and you bring on line some quantum capability, and you bring on some some more open source data, and the Internet of Things starts to become real. Like this thing is is new and it's disruptive, and it's going to be fun to watch how it plays into into our business. Um, but but. You know, I'll let Terry maybe dive into what industry sees uh, the future of of augmented intelligence. It goes way beyond, you know, Google Assistants and, and series, and it really can have and will have a game changing impact, in my opinion. Great point, Terry. So first, I want to thank you for using the word augmented intelligence, and I'll, I'll put the check in the mail here shortly. Um, it is about augmenting the human here. Um, and it's, I think in its first big way that you will see augmented intelligence influence, it will be a force multiplier. So I think there's a couple things that are in the news today we could be true. One, defense, as most other areas, is never going to have enough cybersecurity analysts. Today, augmented intelligence systems actually do some of the analytical work that we have, you know, humans doing, and not only can it do it, it can do it at a rate of speed that humans cannot. And it becomes then a, a force multiplier. You know, let's take one analyst, maybe now do the work of what would have been five analysts, maybe even 10, depending on, on how you're using it. So I think we will see it as a force multiplier, not just in cybersecurity, but in in sensor analysis. I think we can take augmented intelligence and say, okay, given this commander's scenario, this commander's ability with his kinetic and non-kinetic weapons and forces to influence this battle space, how do I filter the data that that commander gets? And I think that will be a prime responsibility or a prime factor that we'll use for an augmented intelligence systems. As it moves and gets smarter, I think it will become able to do, you know, higher and higher level tasks. I think the other thing area that it will be is, is both in time and economies of force. Today, we're already working on going to be able to do things like augment priority of logistics decisions you know, take more and more data and look at, well, what happens if this supply route gets disrupted? What is the quickest, you know, most efficient way to supplement that? You can also do that with 
weapon systems targeting? How do you select? You've got maybe, you know, 20 weapons systems that could, say, impact a target. How do you choose the best one considering factors like ammo, you know, expended, time, other targets that you know you're going to have? I think those things become really well suited to provide augmented intelligence into the operational planners and executors that are going to carry out those missions and will give them a very big advantage as we get that done. Now, that said, the conversation we just had has to come in place. We've got to then have the policies and procedures that will let this in place. But, but that's how I see AI rolling out here in, in defense. And I do think defense will be one of the, if not the trend-setting area uh, in this. I think they will, I think they will react quicker to adapting the augmented intelligence. Uh, I mean, you, you can see this even in things like helping a, how about helping a ship captain transit, you know, something like, uh, you know, the, the straits in around the, the South China Sea where the traffic now is so heavy, it, it looks like a New York street. The ability for an augmented, say, ship captain who's, you know, backing up the captain saying, hey, listen, you've got, you know, 47 ships on these courses. Here's the most, here's the five you need to worry about the most. I mean, I think that kind of intelligence where it's, it's augmenting the command or augmenting even the ability now to stay maybe instead of putting, you know, manned vehicles in place, you could actually put, you know, more unmanned vehicles, which is, you know, better for safer um, all the way around for, you know, sailors, sailors, soldiers, airmen, and marines. So I, I just think this will be, I think augmented intelligence is going to be one of the, the key technologies uh, and, and will be embraced more by defense first than maybe other places. No, great perspective, Terry, really in-depth. Uh, I was wondering, um, how important is is the use and application of hybrid cloud in realizing what we're discussing today? So let, let me answer it this way. First of all, I think you got to think about how you define hybrid clouds. I would give you the definition, which lines up to what I think Len described. Hybrid cloud, to me, it really means hybrid data environment. And, and it, it is being able to take you know, all the advantages that you get from, say, a cloud and provide it as much as you can to data environments that can be everything from a traditional data center to a a modern, you know, uh, IBM Z data center to a collection of servers that are on the edge or maybe a collection of servers that are now, you know, sitting in an aircraft that, that has become a flying, you know, data vacuum. How do you, how do you make that total environment perform like we get from more common cloud environments today? So I think it's critical. I mean, I think I think that that whole hybrid cloud concept applied to the whole data fabric. How do you get the whole entire data fabric to behave more like a cloud? It's it's critical to success. Terry's bang on. He's absolutely right. And the the conversation we had a bit earlier in, 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 was about classification and, and kinds of data that are hard to manage uh, sometimes in the cloud, especially if you're a smaller nation and you're, you know, your sovereign industry infrastructure doesn't have 
uh, enough capacity to justify, you know, creating a, a public cloud. Because what is cloud? Cloud is is an answer to a problem. It's 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 part of a solution. It's not a it's not a, a necessarily the destination. And I, I I struggle sometimes when I talk to business owners inside the department, if you will, uh, look at it that way. Is the you know the concept of getting to a cloud is okay. You're there. What are you going to do when you get there? It it it's just a place to store data. It happens to provide you endless compute power and hyperscale and fidelity and security. Everything you're looking for. It answers a lot of questions. But maybe it's it's in some instances, especially for countries like Canada, where you know we're never going to see. I don't think public secret cloud infrastructure sovereign to Canada. Right. So I'm going to have to have a hybrid environment where I'm going to have to use on premises and I'm going to have to reproduce that hyperscaling, that fidelity, that, you know, compute power on demand. But I may not be able to do it using, um, the, you know, the traditional industry cloud uh, provision. And so we are absolutely going to be open to the architectures, including hybrid cloud, in realizing our needs and wants when it comes to moving data for for things like, you know, pan domain awareness, uh, command and control. Hey, Len, I was wondering if you had any perspective on the use of modern simulation platforms and advances in quantum computing in this area. How do they factor into this? Is this something you want to talk about? You know, the... Last year, I introduced and I deliberately came to Spade with an agenda to raise some awareness and some excitement about the realization that North America needs a modern um, NORAD. Uh, the, the defense of North America and the threat vectors have all changed since the days that NORAD was created and what it was designed to protect us from. And it, it, it involves now, and we've been touching on it all day today, is the concept that the data and the intelligence of what's going on around us, what's coming at us, uh, who's sending it, is going to be available now through sensors that go from everywhere from the submarines to the satellites. And, and that data is going to move and be more plentiful and more available than it's ever been. And I don't know that if today's, as good as those systems are, the compute power available could ever keep up to being able to crunch and see everything that data. So we've been talking about, you know, advanced, uh, advanced intelligent data analysis. We've been talking about um, fast uh, bandwidth, 5G capable networks. We've been talking about endless generation of data from, like Terry said, flying platforms that are essentially data vacuums. Um, and now we're in this dilemma where how do we, how do, although we have great data science, how do we apply algorithms against all that? Quantum is the game changer. And now there's a lot of concern about quantum because if you can, you know, pr produce algorithms for one purpose, uh, you can also produce it for a bad purpose, right? So you, you might want to do augmented intelligence with quantum and put it and point it at all that data that I just talked about getting hoovered up by by these sensors. But that same process, that, that algorithm can also be turned against you um, to crack your your encryption codes, your your cryptology now becomes a question mark. So there's there's a tremendous amount of um advantages to emerging technologies like quantum when it comes to you know processing all that sensor data and putting more sensors out, whether it's uh, space sensors and the surveillance of space. And I just want to want to pull that back here for you just a little bit. If you, if you take, you know, if you take the concept of what we traditionally could do in space 
Uh, and we we have surveillance of space has been out there for over a decade. You know, we continue to watch, monitor, and and space is getting a bit busy, especially, you know, closer to Earth, low Earth orbit. You can actually see satellites launching uh, on a nightly basis, which is fascinating. But what really you, that translates to is all that much more data. All those sensors are up there now, and that, that is producing more and more, you know, opportunities. And, and it, it, with that... Combined with augmented intelligence and the ability to compute, if you have quantum, as that comes online, it's going to be incredible. Um, uh, it's going to be incredible, uh, I think, multiplier for things like domain awareness. It's just how do we harness it and how do we can manage it without losing control and becoming a you know a cyber target? And that's the that's you can go all the way back to your first question: What's the role and and what's the duties? of a chief information officer, of a digital officer in these institutions. It's, it's, you're really getting into the, the fun stuff now, Michael. Yeah, it's a good point there, Len. Uh, Terry, do you have anything to add to that? So uh, everything Len sent is spot on. And here's the other thing I think. Today, when you look at how we have used simulation and advanced planning, it's been mostly valuable in training and what I'll call, you know, strategic level planning where we look at, you know, what would a engagement, you know, between, you know, two threat forces look like, you know, we can model logistics or anything else, but that's done, you know, while we're still in the planning stage. What I see happening today is how do we now move that so that you truly have mission-timed planning and mission-timed simulation? So that you're actually able to, as a commander, you have the compute power and organize so that you could actually run real real time scenarios while the while the operation or the actual you know event is going on that would let you make better decisions in real time based on more data, which you could look at in terms of of simulations. It is something that not just IBM, but there's a there's a course of industries looking at how you do that. How do you develop a a real time mission planning simulation um, system that operates at the speed it needs to be? Obviously, quantum will play a role in that in the future as as we move forward. But I think we're going to see the simulation and planning move closer and closer to mission so that it is really part of, you'll have that capability while you're actually conducting missions. I'd love for you to kind of tell us more about your work with allies in this area, multi-domain, joint, all-domain, pan-domain, and and what's how important and critically important is it to to partner and, and and work with allies, but also with private sector. And what does the future hold for uh, progress in this area? That's for both of you. Glenn? So, Michael, um, in 1941, stay with me here, a bit of history. Um, the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, during World War II called each other up and said, hey, we need to discuss um, communication, electronics, warfare, uh, and we need to be on the same page if we're gonna if we're gonna win this thing. And they started an organization called uh, the Combined uh, Communication Electronics Board. Uh, they've met every year regularly since, or eighty years, ten years after they started. Canada became an official member, so we've been we've been part of that um, five-eyed uh, board 
meeting on the military side to talk about requirements for communication. How do we interoperate? How do we share? That's how long our our countries have been sharing and talking um, in a in a coalition way when it comes to to communications. But eventually, communications, as you know, became became technology, and and now, frankly, we're talking about digital. I hope the history books reflect that Terry invited us to the Pentagon in 2014 for the first meeting uh, of the five-eyed CIOs. And we've met twice a year, every year since, whether it had to be virtually during the pandemic um, or not. And we continue to privilege those meetings of these CIOs of defense for across the five nations, because what became very clear to us early days was the fact we not only share the same problems, but we actually share the same opportunities. And if we we optimize those opportunities and can interoperate because of it, we're making it better for our respective armed forces. And, and so fast forward to today, and what does all that translate to? Um, at a recent meeting of the Five Eyes, we took time to listen to an operational commander from the host nation, it happened to be Australia, talk about what are you guys going to do when you know the rubber hits the pavement in Asia Pacific? What are you going to do for me? What kind of communications are going to be available to me beyond the five, maybe with some countries neighboring, you know, close by that we might want to share information with because they're at risk or they're under threat? How are you, the CIOs of defense, going to help me with that? And and he said, because if, if you can't, I'm going to figure it out, but you're not going to like the solution. So you're going to, I'll be putting my, my data at risk. I could be you know, I'll get it done because that's what that's what armed forces can do and they can mobilize. But if the CIOs can be in front of it, we could be a force multiplier for that particular scenario. And we talked seriously about that scenario and we're still geopolitically talking about that scenario today. The, the other shoe hasn't dropped yet, but I can tell you we've already had the discussion at the table across the five nations on how are we going to architect ourselves to be able to be five but be five plus one, five plus two, whatever we want to be in our in our constructs. And those constructs are cloud-based. I'll give you the, per, the perfect, because um, I don't think there's any debate. All our nations have adopted quickly to the uh, Microsoft Office 365 tenant. So we all have invested in, that, in the Azure cloud and we've made our clouds interoperable amongst the five of us. So we can trust uh, and we can communicate and collaborate. And that's been very effective. But in, a, in an opportunity where we say, okay, that's great. The five of us can work together, but can we add a country for temporarily? Can we bring in another ally um, and protect ourselves and be able to, to toggle that switch? Well, instead of trying to figure that out ourselves, we went to industry. We went out and asked industry, in this case, Microsoft, and said, hey, if this was your problem and you're trying to collaborate you know, to an extended family for a short period of time, how would you do it? Uh, and so the, the benefit of of meeting and being five from the very early days, from that first meeting uh, in Terry's office to where it is today, has just continued to add incredible value uh, to the role uh, of CIO. And frankly, it translates directly to the the benefits uh, translate directly to the armed forces of our respective nations. So I just I wanted to get that out there just so people understand we actually do talk to each other and we do want to talk to industry and we want to influence industry and we want industry to have a shot at our problem space because they may have ideas we haven't come up with yet. And the more we become reliant, the more computing becomes a commodity we 
we lease versus buy from industry, then the more they need to become almost paramilitary in their market analysis and their and their thought processes. Uh, and so I just wanted to to make sure I had the opportunity to to thank our industry partners. Um, I'm looking forward to Spade. I think it's going to be a great time. Um, Terry, thanks for that invite in 2014. And thanks for every year we've had a chance to get together since. Uh, even today, uh, I think it's going to be a great time. Great perspective, Lynn. Terry? Yeah, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention one other name. The other gentleman that really drove that whole first Five Eye meeting was the then UK MOD CIO, Mike Stone, who has been involved in this too. But you ask, you know, what I don't know how you put a value on the fact that we reach out and we make this work for our allies. You know, the Five Eyes, and as Led said, beyond the Five Eyes, you know, adding NATO, adding, you know, Japan, Germany, Korea, all of those somewhat into this mix that is uh, it's the imperative of the imperatives uh, that, that we are able to do that and i think it's it's that way for a couple of reasons one from a technical standpoint for us to get all of the technical advantages the tactical advantages from decision the operational advantages from being able to really win the information war which then helps you win the the war is maybe the biggest factor now in winning giving the continuing i would say increase in parity of the weapons systems but maybe more important for this collection of allies it's kind of what we're about i mean i don't i don't mean to get maybe too um i don't know what the word is but that's what democracies are you know what I mean? They share information, they share data. It, it's what makes the problem sometimes harder for us, but it also gives democracies not only the, the advantages technically, it gives us the advantages in that it's what we fundamentally believe in. So, um, and I'll, I'll just leave it at that. I, I just think that's the, the question we ask. We have to do this with allies. We have to be able to talk quickly, share data, trust allies to make this all work. And, and you ask me what I think for the future. I think we're going to get this done. And, and I think as we see more and more very focused, very engaged, and frankly, well-informed conversations on this, it, it will produce decision superiority for the collection of allies that, that ensures not just battlefield success, but frankly ensures that we will keep being able to kind of live, work, and do all the things that we are able to do today. That's great. I want to thank you both, uh, Terry and Len, for being with me today. I really appreciate it, and best of luck at Spade. Thank you. Thank you, and thanks for, for great questions and for, for hosting this. Thank you. It was a great event for us. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. My guests today have been Len Bastian, Chief Information Officer of Canada's Department of National Defense, and Terry Halverson, former DOD CIO and current senior executive at IBM. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org.
How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.